This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from Washington, sitting in for Josh King, here's Matt Bennett. Well, thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you heard it first on POTUS. I'm Matt Bennett. And I've been asked by my friend and show founder, Josh King, to take over as host for one episode a month of Polyoptics, and I'm very excited about that. And I'm very excited about this episode, because we're going to talk to two people who were right at the center of shaping political optics and political messaging. My first guest is Mo Alethi. Mo's been in Democratic politics for 17 years, and he was named Communications Director of the Democratic National Committee, the DNC, last August. He's a veteran of four different presidential campaigns, including having served as senior spokesman and traveling press secretary for Hillary Clinton's 2008 bid. Now, I met Mo when he was the press secretary for Wes Clark's campaign in New Hampshire, and I'm pretty sure that was the highlight of his career. Mo served in senior communications roles for Senate races and other candidates across the country. He's advised various Democratic committees like the DSCC, the DCCC, and he's a teacher. He's on the faculty of Georgetown's Public Policy Institute teaching a class in campaign management and strategy. And after that, we'll talk to Ralph Alswang. Ralph worked as a photographer for Newsweek and for Reuters for many years, and I met him during his eight years at the Clinton White House as the president and first lady's official documentary photographer. That incredible job took him to every state in the Union and to more than 60 countries where he captured history as it was unfolding. You're really going to love hearing his stories, his insider's take on the White House, and on the actual optics of politics. And Ralph is still at it. He just recently photographed an event with Vice President Biden that my organization, Third Way, hosted last week. And he recently served as photographer at the wedding of Al Gore's son, Albert. But up first is my old buddy, Mo Lethe, communications director at the DNC. As you'll soon hear, Mo and I agree on almost everything, but we don't agree on his Georgetown Hoyas, and we part ways sharply when it comes to college basketball. Go Orange. Mo, I hope you enjoyed that warm welcome to Polyoptics. Thanks for having me. Uh, So, Mo, obviously an earthquake struck politics this week with Eric Cantor's primary defeat. You are a veteran of many Virginia campaigns, and you're an expert on the Commonwealth. And now you get paid to think a lot about what it means for national Democrats and Republicans. So what happened and what does it mean? Um, well, I think first and foremost, uh, you know, this this earthquake, I don't think, begins to describe what happened. I don't know a lot of people on either side of the aisle who saw this coming. Um uh, but I think it probably means a couple of things from a political perspective, at least. Um, first, this narrative that had existed for the past uh, past couple of months, that establishment Republicans had finally figured out how to control the Tea Party and the establishment had won, it's false. That, there's just no way to say it otherwise. Uh, Now, I think it was false before what happened to Eric Cantor, because I think the establishment Republicans that were winning in primaries in other states were winning only not by by defeating the Tea Party, but by becoming the Tea Party. You were seeing more and more Republicans in the quote unquote establishment moving to the right. Which is what happened to Romney. That's uh, exactly right. In 2012. That's exactly right. so the the establishment has been completely co-opted by the Tea Party, but now the Tea Party is really taking over the party establishment. And by defeating Eric Cantor, you see Senator Cochran down in Mississippi uh, poised to lose a runoff potentially uh, against a Tea Party candidate. Um, 
there's no other way to see it now than that. I think the second major point out of this is um, by by conceding the entire heart and soul of the party to the Tea Party, the Republicans are making themselves completely um, they're, they're positioning themselves to become permanently a minority status party in national elections in the future. Uh, because of the fact that Eric Cantor, who is chair of the obstructionist caucus in the House of Representatives, was not seen as obstructionist enough. Um, that says a lot about the direction that the party is going to head in legislatively moving forward. And that is completely inconsistent with what you need to do to win a national election. Um, I hope that the Republicans don't learn the wrong lesson from this and become even more obstructionist on issues like immigration, uh, because we do need immigration reform. But chances are they may. And if they do, there is no way they can compete in the 2016 presidential elections, or I would say in many uh, statewide races around the country. But what do you say to the question of, yeah, but these are still really red districts. I mean, can mm-hmm. can a Democrat win in the Virginia 7? Can we win in districts where Tea Party Republicans in the House uh, are in danger of knocking off incumbents? It's, it's obviously different in the Senate where we've won a bunch of races like Delaware a few years ago where we might have lost otherwise. But what about the House? Can we win those seats? Well, I mean, let's be honest. This was an incredibly Republican district before Eric Cantor lost. It's still incredibly Republican district in terms of in terms of the, the, the composition of the electorate. Whether or not we're going to be able to compete, I think, remains to be seen. We have a candidate in that race, and I think folks now are sort of uh, catching their breath after um, the big shock and are now assessing the situation. Um, but but the bigger issue and why I think uh, it, it, Democrats are well positioned over the next year to to three, right, the 2014 and through 2016 elections is because what's become increasingly clear, what's become increasingly clear is that people are fed up with Washington. People are just fed up with Washington and the obstruction in Washington. What they're fed up with is the obstructionism in Washington that is preventing anything from happening to the middle class. Now, when you look at things like the shutdown, when you look at things like 50-some votes to repeal the Affordable Care Act, when you look at a 13th hearing on Benghazi with no action on an economic agenda that will actually help the middle class. People are reacting negatively to the House Republicans because they're the ones that are owning it, right? People understand that it's the Republican Party that is the obstructionist that is preventing that from happening. And so I think we're beginning to see a backlash against the House Republicans. We already knew Democrats didn't like them. Increasingly, independents weren't liking them, and even Republicans are not liking them now. I think the the most dangerous dangerous to ple- place to be in Washington right now is in the House Republican leadership. Um, that's why I feel good about 2014 and 2016, because uh, politically, because I think people are now beginning to push back and say, "Enough is enough. Do something for me." So uh, let's take a listen on this question of what the Cantor loss means generally for the Republican brand. To your boss, uh, the chair of the DNC and Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz uh, earlier this week. I think what this message uh, that was sent last night says is that 
the Republican Party has been completely swallowed by the Tea Party. I mean, any debate over whether the Tea Party controls the Republican Party has uh, has ended. Um, when when Eric Cantor, who had the most conservative voting record in the in the House Republican leadership, can't win his own party's nomination uh, because he wasn't conservative enough, then you know they have a real a yeah, serious problem. So pretty striking comment there from uh, Congresswoman Schultz noting that Eric Cantor was nobody's idea of a Republican in name only. He was he was not a rhino. He was the head of what he called the young guns who were uh, very conservative and, and in fact scuttled some deals that the speaker was trying to cut early on with uh, President Obama. What does this say, do you think, uh, before we get to 2016, what does it say for Republicans running statewide in Senate races? Is this going to be a problem for them? Uh, again, I think so. I think so, because what's becoming increasingly clear is that um, the tension within the Republican Party, which, frankly, I think is becoming less and less tense. I think I think Republicans have settled on are, are settling now on uh, placating the the extreme wing of their party in order to uh, protect their right flank and and secure nomination, um, that that is driving the agenda. And so when in these statewide races across the country in 2014, we are able to contrast a Republican who who supports this obstructionist agenda, a, 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 a Republican who refuses to act on any of these measures that will help the middle class because they are either focused on defeating President Obama or they are focused on helping the top 1%. If that is the choice on that side, and the choice that Democrats provide is one of just trying to get along in order to pass some common sense measures that are going to help improve lives for middle class Americans and help more people grow into the middle class, Right. When we're out there talking about increased investment in manufacturing, increased investment in infrastructure, increased investment in education, raising the minimum wage, uh, common sense immigration reform. These are the things that are going to actually help grow the economy, help create jobs and help more people grow into the middle class. That's what we're focused on. They are focused on Benghazi. They are focused on uh uh, on repealing the Affordable Care Act. They are focused on tax breaks for the rich. They are focused on shutting the government down in order to prevent our agenda from moving forward. I like that. And that is why I think in so many of these places where we are, quote unquote, endangered or in trouble, we're still leading in the polls. In Arkansas, Senator Pryor has been consistently leading. In Louisiana, uh, Senator Landrieu has been consistently leading. Senator Begich in Alaska, Senator Hagan in, uh, in North Carolina are all leading. And it's why I think Democrats are doing very well in some current Republican-held seats. When you look at places like Georgia, where we have a very, very strong candidate in Michelle Nunn, who um, is doing very, very well against two Republicans. who daughter, are both, of, daughter of Sam Nunn. Right. Uh, and legend. she's and she's running against. Uh, well, we don't know who yet because we've got two two Tea Party Republicans battling it out in a primary in a runoff, um, and we're right in the mix there. When in Kentucky, Senator Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, is either tied or trailing in every single public poll to a very strong candidate in Secretary of State Allison Lundergan Grimes, where every poll shows that Mitch McConnell is not only the least 
popular senator in the nation, but is less popular in his own state than President Obama or Obamacare, that says something to me about how fed up people are and why our agenda and our message is resonating a little bit better. you got to hand it to McConnell. Uh, Obama lost the state by something like 24 points. To be less popular than him is really an achievement. Uh, we are talking with Mo Lethe, the DNC communications director, and this is uh, POTUS on Sirius XM Channel 124. I'm Matt Bennett. Let's listen now to your counterpart, Mo. Uh, Sean Spicer is the communications director for the RNC, the Republican National Committee. He's talking about Republicans' national message. I think John Boehner's done a great job as speaker, and I think if he seeks re-election, he'll do a great job. He'll get re-elected easily. Um, I, I think that's a, that's a little... I'll let the members of the House talk about how they'll handle that. I think um, with respect to, to what happened last night, uh, it was it was one district. And I think the, the bigger takeaway on this, and I, I, I understand the media frenzy, but let's kind of... Step back for a moment. Well, it's not the seventh the media, congressional Sean, district there's is a frenzy Repo- on Capitol Hill among the, the House Republicans. No, uh, Andrew, this but no, no, looks no, like hold on, a, hold on. But looks like an episode oh, of House oh, of Cards Andrew, up there today. Let, uh, worst week in Washington for uh, Republicans generally, and for Eric Cantor, and even for Sean Spicer. Uh, how do you think the rebranding generally of the Republican Party has gone? Uh, we heard a lot about this in, uh, a year or two ago after 2012. They did uh, this autopsy on what happened. They made some technical changes to how they do some of their uh, database management. But they were going to do a big message rebrand. Uh, how's that going for them? Well, it's going great for us. Um, the more the more they try to rebrand, the more they just prove that, that they can't and that they are the same old party, and it's the stuff that people keep rejecting cycle after cycle after cycle, and that's great for for us politically. When they came out of the 2012 election, they put out this huge autopsy report that says, we get it. We understand what's wrong with our party, and we are going to make some, some real investments in changing. So what did they decide? One, they decided that they were going to completely revamp the way they do data and technology and uh, make them more competitive with Democrats on that front. Because there's no question that uh, our side has kicked their tail on the digital front and on, on, on the technology side of campaigns for a while. Um, two nights ago, Eric Cantor lost by or a few nights ago, Eric Cantor lost by 12 points. A few days earlier, his pollster said that he was going to win by 34 Um, So they got some kinks to work out in that system. Um, But more importantly, let's talk about their message. They said that they just simply need to outreach. They don't need to change what they say. They just need to change how they say it. So they were going to invest in hiring a bunch of new people to go um, campaign for them in a bunch of field organizers in the African-American community while at the same time continuing to stand against increasing the minimum wage, while continuing to stand against um, uh, investments in education, while continuing to stand against um, the Civil Rights Act. I mean, this, I'm I'm sorry, I wouldn't want to be one of those field organizers in the African-American community carrying that message. They said they were going to hire a bunch of new people to go and reach out in Hispanic community, but they continue to stand against immigration reform. They continue to stand against uh, investments in education that would help the Latino community. I don't, I don't know what those people will be saying. They said that they were going to be less hostile, less hostile to uh, LGBT Americans. Um, just today, Rick Perry, who is a potential um, 
uh, presidential candidate said that um, compared uh, being gay to alcoholism. Um, and they continue to stand against marriage equality. They continue to stand against so many different issues that just show fundamental fairness. Um, their rebrand is failing because their problem is not the tactics. Their problem is the core of, of, of what their party stands for today. That's why the American people keep rejecting them. They've got one hope left as a party to be competitive, and that is low turnout. And that's why they are trying so hard in this election to focus on this, because every recent election proves one single point. There's one truism in politics today. When the turnout is higher, Democrats win. When turnout is lower, Republicans win. And so we're seeing this battle now even manifest itself in voting rules around the country and voting laws where Republicans are trying to make it harder for people to participate and vote while we're trying to open it up and expand that. Let's talk about you for a minute. Uh, you are uh, now, obviously, the communications director of the DNC, but you've had a lot of different jobs over the years. You've worked for Senate candidates in Virginia and elsewhere. Uh, and in 2008, you were the traveling press secretary for Hillary Clinton. Um, she's made a little bit of news mm -hmm. lately. Uh, folks are talking about her. Give us your perspective, uh, not on Hillary generally, one would have to assume that you're a fan, but uh, how do you think the book rollout is going and what do you think is the path for her uh, over the course of the next, let's say, six months if she's not going to be declaring for president? What is she going to do? Uh, well, look, I preface it by saying, and, and I honestly believe this, this isn't, uh, this is one of those cases where the spin actually mirrors the truth. Um, I, I don't know what she's going to do. And I'm not sure she knows what she's going to do in in the context of a presidential campaign. Uh, and frankly, I don't know that she needs to know yet what she's going to do. Um, look, Hillary Clinton has been a tremendous um, public servant her entire life, um, has uh, contributed more uh, in public life than um, than than most. And um, earned some time after she left the State Department to just kind of kick back a little bit, uh, enjoy some downtime. And she proved that she doesn't know how to do downtime, right? I mean, she dove right into um, speaking and, and getting involved in, in the Clinton Foundation, doing some pretty important work globally, particularly on behalf of women and girls. She um, wrote this book, which I've just started reading, and I'm loving it. I, it, it is such an um, being on the on the front lines of history during such an important time in American foreign policy, working hand in hand with this president to actually restore our standing globally was a Herculean undertaking. Uh, and the fact that she and the president, who had one one time rivals, um, were able to become um, strong partners and really make us safer and more secure globally. Um, I'm glad she's doing this book tour. I know a lot of people want to see it through the prism of politics, but I'm glad because that's an important story to tell. It's important for people to understand how we were able to come back from an era of, um, uh, of where we were not at our strongest globally, where we did not have the cooperation of so many of our, of our allies um, and restore that standing and really put us back into a position of global leadership. That's an important story to tell. Now, a lot of Republicans are out there using this as an opportunity to beat her up and trying to make her uh, attack her leadership credentials. One, it's not working. I think most people understand what kind of a leader she is. But taking it outside the context of her potential candidacy, because she may not run, 
Um, I do think it is a great opportunity for us to compare the Democratic foreign policy agenda and message to the Republican foreign policy message and agenda. Um, because, again, to what, the extent there is a to, coherent. Well, Republican. There, there's frankly two different ones right. on the Republican right. side. Right. Matt? I mean, there's there's one strain of the Republican Party that wants to go back to the days of rushing in first and asking questions later that wants to go back um, sort of the neocon era that that uh, defined uh, much of um, the previous eight years before this president took office um, and just start dropping bombs wherever uh, wherever they felt an itch. And then there's the other part of the Republican Party that wants to just completely retreat from the entire world. Right. Go back to an era of isolationism and 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 withdrawing even from our strongest allies, withdrawing foreign aid, even from Israel. That's something that an actual potential presidential candidate, Senator Rand Paul, has recommended doing. Um, I'll I, I will compare what well, once they figure that out amongst themselves. I'm happy to compare either one of those to what this president has done, which is restore our leadership abroad, re calibrate our relationships with our allies um, in a very, very difficult world um, where where lines are constantly being redrawn. Um, and um, frankly, take us back to an era, take us back to what used to be our traditional foreign policy, which was one of leadership among allies creating a real true international collaboration to tackle our collective challenges. That's not what we did uh, for eight years before this president took office, and that's what the Democratic approach, this president, this vice president, and former Secretary Clinton and current Secretary Kerry, that's been their approach to diplomacy. And, and I like the fact that we're beginning to have that conversation again because I think that helps the Democratic Party and tells people what's at stake. Right. As Bill Clinton would say, we do it together when we can and alone when we must, something the Republicans kind of turned on its head during the Bush years and, and some want to go back to. Right. Um, before I let you go, uh, let's talk a little bit about the politics around Hillary Clinton, because it's obviously on everyone's mind. Um, she had a little bit of a testy exchange with a radio host uh, this week. Um, how do you think that came out for her? And what did that tell you or remind you about who she is and how she performs, you know, as a as a political figure? Um, look, it's a, um, you know, this issue of um, of marriage equality is um, one that we've seen so much, so much movement on and the entire nation has moved on Um over the past, um, you know, decade, decade and a half. I mean, it wasn't even a decade. It was exactly uh, a decade ago that um, Karl Rove and the Republicans were putting anti-gay marriage ballot initiatives on uh, the ballot in every competitive state in the country uh, in the hopes of driving up Republican turnout. It was, um, uh, and, and they were winning those fights. Here we are 10 years later, and we are standing in the right in the middle of a tidal wave of equality. The whole nation seems to be moving in this direction at a rate that, that uh, I think is catching a lot of people off guard. Um, and so a lot of people, whether they're in public life or not, I think are coming to terms with this personal as well as very public evolution on the issue. Now, in the political context, people all the time, I think, want to... Um, 
try to, uh, you know, tend to be a little crass and trying to, or assign crass motives. Um, and, um, and I get that. And I think a lot, that's something that a lot of politicians have to, have to contend with. Um, but I think it, it does behoove us all to kind of do what, what, what the former secretary recommended in this exchange with this, uh, with this reporter and just say, let's all stop for a second. So I'll stop for a second and reflect on where we were and where we have come to and where we need to go. Let's not just assign to each other motives. Let's hear from hear each other out and reflect on where we need to go next. Uh, and I think as you and I were reflecting for the show, it, uh, her answer also showed a little bit of the steel in her spine that uh, Vladimir Putin and others uh, discovered when they were encountering her as Secretary of State, and as we remember from her uh, time when she was uh, in politics as a senator and as a first lady, and uh, maybe once again in our future. Uh, I can't let you go without asking for a prediction, uh, without demanding that you stretch credulity too much uh, relating to the House. Give me a prediction on the Senate in 2014. Will Harry Reid be the majority leader or the minority leader in January of next year? I think we're going to hold on to the Senate. Um, I think it's going to be close. I think there are a lot of competitive races. Um, but uh, we, I think we will do well in the House. I think we will hold on to the Senate. I think there will be more Democratic governors at the end of the night. Uh, on election night than there were at the beginning. The governors are going to be the real battleground, and we're going to do well. And I think the Georgetown Hoyers are going to sweep the Syracuse Orange next year at the return of that rivalry. Uh, there you have it, with the exception of that last <laughs> note. Mo Alethe dead on with his bullish predictions about Democrats. Mo Alethe, DNC Communications Director, thank you so much for coming on Polyoptics. Thanks for having me, Matt. Coming up next on Polyoptics, we'll talk to Ralph Alswang, a veteran photographic journalist and former Clinton White House official photographer. We're back with Polyoptics on Sirius XM's satellite radio. I'm Matt Bennett. As promised at the top of the hour, we now turn to a conversation with Ralph Alswang, who served for all eight crazy years of the Clinton administration as an official photographer to the president and the first lady. Uh, those, of course, are roles they may be reversing in due time. Ralph, welcome to Polyoptics. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Matt. It's an honor to be here with you. Uh, we're delighted. Before we begin our conversation, I want to play a short clip from a terrific Nat Geo TV documentary about the president's photographer. Let's listen. He'll meet with heads of state, members of Congress, and speak to crowds of thousands, making decisions that affect millions here and around the world. Capturing every moment is his chief photographer, Pete Souza. I think creating a good photographic archive for history is the most important part of my job, creating this archive that will live on. Well, Ralph, I have to say I've never held a job that Morgan Freeman was a narrator for, so that's kind of <laughs> cool. Uh, you had that job that Pete has now for uh, President Obama. Reflect for a second about broadly about what we heard and about what the job is. Yeah, I think it's I think it's one of the you know great photo jobs to have in the country. 
you are at the side of the president and the first lady um, in all their official moments and most of their private moments, uh, good and bad. And I agree with what Pete said, which is it's an incredible honor to create this document that is going to be have this historic value to the presidency um, and uh, history as people look at, the, at at what president you work for. And your role really was as a documentarian, right? You were there to make sure that there was photographs of basically everything that the president first lady did is that yeah i mean i would say that generally there was no off limits i mean i can't say in my in my time there that there was anything where we weren't you know most private matters whether it be family time whether it be chelsea going to her prom and the parents getting a ready christmas morning um in the bad times whether politics were going bad you know i remember the time when you know the, the great midterm loss you know, we were there that morning. 1994. Yeah, 1994. And we were there as, you know, as, as it came unraveled and to watch a president kind of function through that and try to rally the Democratic team. And what was your relationship with the Clintons before you got the job? And, and how did you get the job? So I was very, very fortunate. Um, the director of the whole program was a guy named Bob McNeely. He brought me in. Um, interestingly, I was at... Um, I'd been at Reuters and the news the news photographer's party. I'd gone over to National Geographic. They needed a photographer who had background in what they at that time was called digital photography. Well, digital photography at that time was actually not as we know it. It was the idea of aiming to take film, turn it into a digital product, which was a small one megabyte JPEG, and that took 40 beautiful minutes to get somewhere in the world. And um, so they wanted to get that program because that was the big, remember that big program? We were going to have this way to have this reach, this uh, outer reach at George and these guys had an idea they were going to be able to do that did not work out I mean the technology quite wasn't there and you remember the backlash from the press was like we are going to have this relationship with the president you are not going to circumvent that and uh, so just to be clear you were shooting on film back right. in the day and this was in, the, in 1992 to 2000 yep. uh, and so how did that work I mean you must have shot thousands of rolls of film, you and the other photographers. Yep. What, what happened? So there were four of us assigned to the President First Lady. You know, I would say on average we were probably shooting 20 rolls, a, you know, 20 rolls a day plus. Uh, if you look at that, you know, it's hundreds of rolls probably potentially in a week. And I can't remember what it was, but, you know, it might be 15,000. It might be 15,000 rolls per photographer. So, you know, we're talking about a lot, a lot of pictures. You know, and, and it was the beginning of the understanding that there was going to be what we could see as digital photography. Couldn't couldn't see it the way we think now with the way you think of an iPhone or the ability to use the internet, but it was becoming, it was getting there. And of course, uh, Pete, Souza, and and others who've come after you guys have been shooting on digital and things are right. a lot easier in terms right. of management of the photos. Um, let's take another listen to an excerpt from the Nat Geo show, this one featuring the presidents themselves talking. The White House photographer is ever present. I'm sure people don't understand, but every meeting I had was recorded. For 50 years, presidential photographers have covered it all. Upheaval, tragedy, and joy. Often developing friendships with the presidents they serve. I think at this point, Pete and I are like an old couple. We, we sort of know each other, and he's like a member of the family. Were you a member of the Clinton family? Did you feel that way about the Clintons? Uh, did you develop that kind of relationship with them? I mean, I, I, make, I kind of felt like I was a very high-level trusted servant. I always used to say I was a butler with a camera. But uh, all joking aside, I, I, was, I tried to make sure that I never wanted to cross that. I wanted to make sure that I kept very clear that you know I had a very important job to do um, and that that relationship was 
for me to be a documentarian in their life. And you have a very close relationship. I mean, they clearly have trust because they're there in the good times and the bad. But a little bit like the mill aide, I don't think, you know. The military to the president. Yeah, the military to the president who has a much bigger job than any of us, right? Because if things really hit the fan, they've got to activate a lot of important things. I don't think the millates think about if themselves as a friend or not. They think they have a very important job to do. They have a very important function, and they have to stay focused on that. And they have to be trusted to have that relationship. So I sort of took that as my. Well, from what I observed, uh, the photographer was around a lot more than the military aide, right? Yeah. Particularly in the White House, the military aide was just in an office somewhere. Yeah. Um, and, and you guys were, as you said at the outset, photographing everything, good, bad, private, public, were there times the Clintons um, are, uh, I can test, very, very good to their staff and their yep. people. But look, they're human, and they're they live in a they lived and and still live in a bit of a fishbowl. Were there times when they snapped at you, and um, did you ever feel like you were intruding, or or uh, did they just accept it all the time? I Man, I'll tell you, the, the hardest moment I had probably early on in my time was during the Oklahoma City bombing. If we all remember that. Um, the president went to actually meet with the, the families, and they had housed them in this special area behind the that arena that where they were having the event at. And I went in. It was probably the only time was early on in my job that I froze up. I was actually there was a such kind of palpable tension in the room about the loss and what it all meant. And of course, it wasn't about Clinton. It was really about the situation. And it was I was a real kind of failure of mine because I didn't get enough pictures on that day of behind the scenes. And then I just realized that you had to be just absolutely go at it, kind of put on your, put the camera in front of you and just photograph what was happening and going for the president because you just could not miss those moments in history. So I learned from that moment that I had to always step in and make the hard pictures. And what about others in those difficult moments? Did you ever get yelled at by family members in in very emotional situations or others? You know, it's interesting. I don't think the president or first lady really ever honestly ever really said anything you know have you gotten they might have said times have you gotten enough pictures you know i just need a little break it was actually more a lot of the times the staff thought they'd had enough and sometimes you'd have to say to staff like you know i'm actually sorry but i know that you outrank me but we have to really think about am i going to leave now or not because what about guests like um maybe not with the oklahoma city families but were there people that you were photographing with the president that didn't understand your role and and ever reacted negatively no you know what i'll tell you a story about that um i don't i think people are so except if you're extraordinarily powerful and poised or you're a very poised leader i think when you walk to meet the president i think uh, it's a little bit like being starstruck or stage struck I think you're in an envelope, you're in a vortex of space that I think you completely forget. I'm sure if they ask you who's in the room, I forget there's that psychological thing, what happened, timing, they'd be like, I was there three hours, you know, everybody there was there, and there was him, and they talked for five minutes. I think right. you have that moment. I mean, but I will tell you, one of the most amazing moments I had uh, photographing was early on and just realized the impact of the small and large parts of the presidency was, as you know, the presidents, all presidents have make, 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 make a wish children. Mm-hmm. So Clinton was, I always used to think he excelled at those moments, which I'm sure most presidents do. But there was a young child, I didn't really know how six she was. She's about 12. Beautiful young girl, walked in, bald, you know, great um, posture. And she said to the president, you know, it's really great to meet you. It's been my dream. I'm very, very sick. I've been fighting this cancer for a long time. And, but, you know, I'm having a really hard time of getting very close to dying. I'm having a hard time. And my family's having a hard time. Could I talk to you about it privately? So the president said, you know, I really love to have a moment. So he sat with her, and his people forget that Clinton was very religious. You know, he had the Bible on the desk. He used it. You know, you can talk to speechwriters about trying to figure out. It was before the internet. He would quote something. You'd have a discussion about was it the right quote. He'd then show you that where it was in the Bible. And he said to this young woman, "I need 
I need something to make me feel like I can be okay with this passing and I can share with my family. And Clint pulls the Bible off the, the desk and he starts reading this passage and you look at him, the girl's becoming palpably relaxed. Like she's clearly connecting with the president. He's sharing this message of support. She's getting what she needs in this moment. And, um, you know, he's just streaming with tears. And then, you know, three weeks later, you know, we hear that she had passed away. So, you know, you're in those moments uh, that are very, very powerful. I mean, I have tons of those, whether it be personal moments or political moments where you just you can't believe that these things are being revealed and your job is to photograph that. This is uh, Pete Souza talking about one of those moments that's become semi-famous in the Obama administration. Pete took a, a wonderful picture. It's a very simple picture of a little boy who came in with his family. Uh, and he was the son of somebody who I works at the White House. He couldn't have been more than three or four years old. And he very boldly told me that uh, people told him that uh, he and I had the same haircut. And so he wanted to see if uh, that was true. So I, I put down my head so that he could examine my hair. And uh, he helpfully pointed out all the gray hairs. And then he decided to pat me on the head just to get a feel for it. And Pete took a picture. And I think that one has stayed up through the the whole year and a half, just because it reminds you uh, not to take yourself too seriously. If uh, you know a three-year-old can pat you on the head in the Oval Office, then you're probably keeping your sense of humor. President Obama there talking about uh, a famous photo of him and, and about the blow-up photos that you see all over the West Wing of the White House that rotate. The official photographers take these photos, and every few months they change. Uh, talk about some of your favorite photos that you took that ended up on the walls of the White House or other places. Well, I think, you know, they have this great tradition. You know, anybody that's fortunate enough to tour the West Wing or work in the West Wing, you get to see things that they call jumbos. They lay out dozens of pictures, sort of whatever the theme of the work that's going on in the presidency or trips that have been taking. And I was very fortunate in my eight years, I spent probably about 120 days a year on the road, and I traveled over 60 countries. So it gave me a lot of exposure. Um, I, you know, I think I look back on times, I always found it very fun to photograph Boris Yeltsin. He was always great with the president. And we have some incredible pictures when he was up at Roosevelt's birthplace, and they'd had just your scariest time. And there's a great picture of him laughing and Clinton just looking incredibly sort of amused because he's calling the American press crazy and you should love Bill and why do you feel bad to this guy? I think there's moments like that. Um, I think, you know, walking, we just had the the D-Day celebrations. Clinton being on the beach in Normandy, there was a famous, um, one of the famous soldiers, his brother had died one beach down and they were walking and he was talking to him and, you know, he leaned down with the president. He said, you know, it's taken me 50 years, but I'm hoping today can bring closure because I still dream of my brother dying a beach down from me. Taking those kind of pictures were just truly, truly amazing. Um, amazing access for somebody like you. you. You saw things other people didn't see. And in fact, the role of the White House photographer is for history, but it isn't necessarily for news. Right. And uh, one thing that has been uh, somewhat of a source of tension in the Obama White House is their propensity to release pictures that Pete and others have taken uh, as news and giving it to the press and putting it out on, on the web and not giving access to the photojournalists who are in the White House press corps. Um, let's talk first about what the dynamic was when you were in the White House. You would, after all, come from the press corps right. and, and into the official job. How did that work with you and the and the 
press photographers? Well, I always felt, I mean, I felt, okay, I was White House staff, but I had been colleagues and working professionals with all those people that had been, on, as they said, the other side of the door, the press room door. And I felt that, you know, they put an incredible amount of effort into wanting to cover the president and fairly, and we work in this thriving democracy where freedom of the press is a big part. So that always meant a great deal to me, and I tried to hold on to that. So, you know, getting into the conversation you're asking about, when I was asked to do releases, you know, I, my debate was always whoever it was, even that I was not a big person in the operation. I'd always say, like, are we sure we can't do 90 seconds and bring in AP and do a pool or bring in the canvas because I felt that that did was much more valuable for the presidency and the democracy and for the operation of the press. I think the transparency is important. So you were somewhat uncomfortable um, with the idea that what you were offering was the same as what AP might want to release itself. Yeah, I mean, I think, listen, there's a lot of moments inside the presidency that are sculpted at what could be a bill signing. I still think it's important for um, the press organizations that cover the, the presidency in, in the pool to have that access. I just think it validates sort of what's going on in history and what's going on within the cycle. And I, I, I'm a full supporter of that. We're talking to Ralph Allswang on Polyoptics, POTUS, Sirius XM Channel 124. I'm Matt Bennett. And Ralph served for eight years as the official photographer for President Clinton and uh, the First Lady. Uh, why don't we listen to yet another short clip from the Nat Geo uh, President's Photographer Show. This one uh, has President Obama talking about uh, Pete Souza. It is actually a very difficult thing for anybody who occupies this office to be under that kind of constant uh, observation. Uh, it's one of the hardest things to get used to uh, in being president. but. When you have somebody like Pete Souza, who you trust, who's a friend, and who is able to purposely fade in, into the background so that at a certain point you don't notice he's there, uh, then it makes it a little bit easier. Did you ever find that hard, Ralph Falswing, when you were shooting President Clinton or the First Lady? Uh, you talked about doing it at Chelsea's uh uh, major life events like graduations. Did you ever find it hard to fade into the background? Well, I think the thing it's interesting, you know, it'd be interesting to ask President Clinton what he thought about, you know, the way President Obama phrased that. I don't think President Clinton would have ever thought that, you know, I just don't think I would have been on his radar in that way. I just think he, there were so many people around the presidency that are observing you or not observing you, whether it's a Secret Service, whether it's, you know, the doctor, or, uh, a lot of staff, as you know, you've had that experience. So I don't, I don't, Clint, I think Clinton does, you were just part of the machinery around him. And as long as you were professional and your comportment was appropriate, I, I never felt out of place. There were some times when you had to will yourself there because you're like, wow, I'm coming into a private moment. You know, they're celebrating a birthday. It's Christmas morning. It's uh, somebody's died. You have to go in and insert yourself. But it's really, most of the time, there's a way to come into the room and leave the room with really not being, having very little impact. Were you or, or uh, Bob McNeely or uh, one of your other colleagues around when the president's mother passed away and at the funeral, were you in those kind of super intense emotional situations yeah, with him? Yeah, I mean, oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were there. You know, I mean, when you take the real tragedy of Vince Foster's death, we were there. Right. I remember, um, you know, being at the graveside. And, you know, that was early on in the presidency. So, you know, you really haven't built up a rapport yet. But, you know, th nobody ever said anything to me. It wasn't like when I walked up to the gravesite to look in and see the president looking into Vince Foster's grave. It wasn't like anybody said, like, what are you doing? I just think people were in that moment. I was dressed like any other respectful person at the, the funeral. 
and you're in the, at the same time, you know, you find yourself in amazing moments. I mean, I remember when um, when uh, Jackie Onassis died, and I went up to New York with the first lady to attend a funeral, and I just happened to walk in with her, and she was meeting the Kennedy family, and I was taking pictures, and it was very quiet. I was working with the Leica at the time, which is a very you know unobtrusive, very quiet, beautiful, historic camera to work with, and. I stopped, and in the first lady went to the get her seat, and I was just in the room. Now nobody, in, I was in the uh, cathedral. Nobody was said anything to me. They were clearly I was with the first lady, and then I looked over, and I'm like, I'm next to Jackie Onassis's casket. There's the flag draped casket. It's ready to be rolled out. So there's a lot of moments when you find times like that. Conversely, I remember when the first lady flew to uh, Princess Di's wedding. I happened to be on vacation. They called me, said, "You're the closest person to her. You've got to go with her." Funeral. To funeral, yeah, yeah Princess Di's funeral, and it was amazing. You know, we went into London. We flew in, we arrive, I put on a suit, and we go off, and we go through London, it's completely shut down, and I walk into the Abbey with her. They, Nobody really stops me, but it's clearly I'm not going any farther. I look over, you know, they're getting ready to bring Princess Diane, and I then end up in this kind of royal courtyard with all the Queen's limo drivers, and they have like a little TV set, and we're watching the funeral on this TV set as the ba- the you know the as the bells are ringing, and you're watching that stuff. So you have these amazing experiences, not just photographically, but where you you just find yourself in positions you can't believe. Um, let's circle back to what we were talking about earlier regarding the role of the White House photographer and the role of the press. In the Obama administration, the White House press office, uh, not necessarily Pete Sousa himself, but the press office, has made a lot of decisions that uh, to keep press out of events that they probably would have been in 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 previous administrations, certainly in the Clinton administration. Absolutely. So um, you talk about the White House press pool coming in to shoot the top of various meetings and events, uh, and and instead what they've done is said, look, we're going to just release images from Pete Sousa. The pushback from the press has been, yes, but how can we trust that that was an accurate representation? We right. are journalists, and, right. and if something bad or embarrassing happens, we can't trust that you'll put it out. Where do you weigh in on all this, having been on both sides of that rope line? I mean, I think, I think it's a very fair question. I think, the pre- I, think the press, I think the press should never stop asking that question. I mean, I found that generally in my eight years that I think what I saw and what I experienced, I think generally the American government works truthfully and forthrightly, um, at least in, in its day-to-day workings. Um, but I think it is not help when we have these small moments in time, you know, where the president's, I don't know if it's a situation that Pete had photographed, but where it's a small bill signing, why not just bring in the poll for 90 seconds and have a picture so you have that transparency? And that I'd be really interested to know how the, what the administration's take on that. Why can't they give that extra five minutes to the history of the presidency and the, and the transparency of freedom of the press. And obviously there are circumstances where you can't bring press in. Pete took the now very famous picture from the Situation right. Room during the Bin Laden raid. You can't have a bunch of press in the Situation right. Room. Absolutely. Um, but, and I think everybody understands that, right. but but it does seem that the rules have been extended. And, and I'm wondering what your feeling is now. You've been out of the White House now, obviously, for 14 years. Yep. Um, you're still in the game, still taking photos at political events. You did one for my organization, Third Way, uh, just you. recently with Senator, uh, uh, Vice President Biden. Um, what now that everyone is a photojournalist? Right. Every single person who encounters the president has a camera in right. their pocket. Um, 
Has that changed the way that that photojournalists themselves think about their role in these events? Well, I don't think there's any more downtime. I mean, I don't think, you know, the days when we might have a half hour off where you were just waiting for the president and you were in some amazing location, you got a chance to look around. Every photographer who's covering the presidency is trying to transmit an image as soon as they can. Um, And that's not going to work. I do. But if you're an AP photographer or you're Reuters or AFP or any of the ones that are covering them. I don't think there's a lot of more downtime. You know, the Obama just came back from a trip in Europe. I bet if you could t- answer, interview some of those press photographers, they have a few minutes, but the days where you might be sitting and looking down some great avenue, taking in something, I think it's less and less. You're really on the coattails of the president and trying to keep up and trying to transmit. Yet it, things have to be in real time almost. And, and it does seem kind of ironic that at the moment when the Obama press office is trying to kind of control and corral access to images of the president, is the very moment when every single person that he encounters can take pictures of him. Absolutely. Um, and, and is taking pictures of him. And, and is, right. right. And, uh, of course, Mitt Romney found out about that uh, with right. the uh, 47% comment. Um, so all of polyoptics has right. really been transformed by this um, miniaturization and democratization of um, the art of photojournalism. Right. Absolutely. And I think the reach is, in the, and anybody can have the impact. Uh, we are talking with Ralph Oswing, former official photographer to Presidents Clinton and First Lady Hillary Rodham Clinton. You spent some time on Hillary's plane in 2008. Uh, how did that experience compare to the time you traveled with her and the president uh, in the White House? Well, it wasn't a lot different. I mean, I, I always find um, the president and the First Lady engaged by uh, the public and connecting with the issues that are important to them. And I think the campaign was that there is a grueling, you know, pace to the campaign you have you have to put up. And I think the news cycle has changed some. So, I mean, I think, you know, day on the campaign, if you're in Iowa, starts at 530 and you're probably still going at 1030 at night. So, you know, it's way past the 12, 14, 15, 16. You know, you're probably probably a modern presidential campaign. You're probably running 18 hours a day. And did you find your role on the campaign was different than your role in the White House? Um, you were a uh, you were there to document the presidency that was going into the archives. It was for history when you were in the White House, uh, whereas on the campaign you had been hired by the campaign and, and you were there uh, as part of the campaign. Did you see a distinction there or not? I, I, you're definitely, listen, you're part of the political operation when you're when you're a campaign photographer, but there was no influence in the sense of, like, go over and get that angle. Right. I mean, it was more what happened in her early campaign was just the, the – Credible drive to meet the media, the early social media needs. So you know you would get done in Des Moines at eleven thirty at night, and you would have photographed a thousand images, and they needed ten images from the day. You know that's probably an hour's worth of work. So by the time you're wrapped up in getting all meeting all the uh, media needs for the for the communication team of the campaign, you're probably two o'clock in the morning. You're back up at four thirty for bad call. That having... sounds great. Where do we sign up for that? Exactly. Show? Exactly. <laughs> Uh, and the campaign had to have – you weren't the only photographer. Yeah, we shared it. It started out with me and uh, David Skull, and then uh, it was an interesting transformation for me. I really was honored and loved being with, with uh, the senator at that time, and I realized um, for my personal life and where I was with my family that I wanted to return to my you know freelance photography life. And then Barb, really wonderful, also White House photographer, came in, and Barb Kinney had, took over and really did a beautiful job on the campaign. Uh, it's interesting, as you know, you and Barb, both official White House photographers, and uh, to the point we heard uh, both Presidents Obama and Bush make uh, in those clips, you became close enough to them that they really trusted you and you were uh, welcomed back in to do it again uh, right. in another uh, 
position where they were at times pretty vulnerable. Right. I mean, uh, campaigns are hard on candidates, particularly losing campaigns. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't, you know, I think the I think the part is you're so tired on the plane. You know, it's like you, the first lady, uh, the senator at that time was really nice on the plane. I mean, part of it was. You know, I think what's hard about the modern political cycle, too, is there's no downtime for the candidates either. You know, they have smart people like you, Matt, around who are like, okay, you know, we got to we got to crush these numbers right now because you're going to the grain meeting. Right. And you just left, you know, the uh, fruit fly. meeting. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, you left you, you're going to meet with the corn growers and you just left the wheat growers right. and you got to know these stats. And so there's a smart guy like you or a smart woman who's pounding them on that. But you understand, right, because you're going to be asked. That's their fun thing they do. You know, they want to know the people they're going to endorse knows these things. Right. And you make one mistake, and that's the news for the week, and then right. you completely right. – the, Yeah, that's exactly it. Then you – oh, she doesn't know that stuff, or he doesn't know that stuff. Um, you also have, uh, in your freelance career, have been doing work with uh, former White House denizens like the Gores. You just did Albert uh, Gore Jr.'s yes. weddings. Uh, what are those experiences like uh, as they compare to doing uh, photography for these folks in political or, or governmental Situations? Does it feel similar? It's to- a great. It's you know. It's a, a, thanks for answering that question. It's a great honor. I mean, you know, I've known Albert since he's twelve, and he's turned out just to be an incredibly beautiful young man. Really marrying a really great young woman, and they have a, just a beautiful life ahead of them. So it's great to see that progress, and that's one of the real powers of being a photographer and having these close relationships with these families, which is they allow you to see this kind of generational growth, and it's why I love being a photographer. Could you ever see yourself going back to a Clinton White House if, you know, there I'd be might very, be one? I'd be very, very honored to be asked. And, you know, my children actually, as I age rapidly, I think my children would think I have some, you know, currency of coolness if I had a job like that. <laughs> they actually, I just want you to know, I appreciate coming to your show today. made them think that I was very cool. So I appreciate that. Well, uh, I am here to tell your kids that you are super cool and always have been. I appreciate uh, it. Ralph Alswang, former Clinton official photographer, maybe future Clinton official photographer. Thank you so much for joining us on Polyoptics. Thank you very much for the invite. Well, that's it. Another episode of Polyoptics on Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124. Thank you so much to Ralph Alswang and to Moa Lee. I'm Matt Bennett. I'll be back next month. Until then, thank you so much for listening.